Hey everybody, what is going on? And welcome back to a brand new episode of Sweeten Up. I am your host as always, Jeff Spencer, coming at you from my podcast studio located in the heart of Newtown, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining me today. Whether it's your first time or you have for a while, I greatly appreciate it. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts so you never miss a future episode. Also, the podcast is located on Facebook and Instagram. Just search at Sweeten Up Podcast. Last but not least, if you have a smart speaker, just say, play the podcast Sweeten Up with Jeff Spencer. Today on the podcast, I was so excited to be joined by the great and powerful Sarah Ferris. Sarah Ferris covers the House for Politico's Congress team, focusing on the Democratic Caucus. She has covered Capitol Hill for six years, including stints focused on budget and healthcare policy for Politico Pro and The Hill Newspaper. A graduate of the George Washington University, Ferris spent most of her time writing for the George Washington Hatchet. She also has written for outlets including The Washington Post, The Houston Chronicle, and The Center for Investigative Reporting. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my friend and cousin, Politico reporter, Sarah Ferris. Joining me on the podcast today, I am absolutely thrilled to be sitting down via Zoom video conferencing with a tremendous individual, a national reporter for Politico's Congress team focusing on the Democratic Caucus, a Newtown, Connecticut native, and my cousin, the great Sarah Ferris. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me this evening on the podcast, and how are you doing down in Washington, D.C.? Well, that might be the best intro that I've ever had. <laughs> um I am good. Washington, D.C. is good. We're finally, you know, it's finally getting a little less crazy down here. It's supposed to be August recess, which is normally a great time to be in Washington because there's nothing happening. Everybody kind of goes on vacation. Um, but this this past weekend, I was over at the House chamber covering a vote. So everything is weird. Everything is weird. No, I, I, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Um, I mean, D.C. is already a hectic place. And with everything else that's going on, it just must be wild. But one place I want to start is I know that we were both growing up in Newtown and when we were young and you know, being cousins and we were hanging out at your family's farm or just going to family gatherings. And I never would have thought, not saying it was never possible, but I just never would have thought that one of my cousins would end up being a national political reporter covering Congress. So what is that like? How did you get from small farm town to where you are now? It does have sort of a poetic uh, description to it when you put it that way. Um, I mean, one, I think, you know, the fact that I went to college in D.C. was really where, um, you know, I just kind of never left. And that's a, that's what kind of this town is. It's a lot of people who you find a way to get to D.C., you know, you want to be involved, be in the center of politics. And then you just kind of, you know, find what you're interested in. And for a while, I was covering healthcare. Um that was one of the most complicated, complex, hardest um, possible subjects to, to, to write about and to be interviewing people about. Uh, I, I covered the federal budget, which is, uh, you know, just really exciting stuff. Um, you know, just learning kind of the policy chops and figuring out how the gears turn in the Capitol and, and kind of learning how the politics work by understanding the policy of it. And then from there, now I cover um, the politics of the Democratic Caucus. So it's a lot of palace intrigue of kind of what is leadership up to, who's, who's uh, you know, kind of battling for the next gavel, who's looking, you know, who is, who is the speaker talking to, what are the conversations going on that are driving, you know, these policies like right now, this en enormous coronavirus 
bill, literally I've in the last like three months, I've watched the biggest bills that have ever been passed out of Congress. It's, know, it's, incredible. it's, it's insane. I mean, all of this is just, yeah, it's really crazy times, but I, I, I am the luckiest person. My job is awesome. <laughs> um, it's, uh, things are you know it's like we never really got the break after impeachment it was like impeachment february 14th the president was acquitted and two weeks later everything is shutting down so it's just kind of been going crazy since since impeachment started in october right and like you were saying you've covered so many crazy historic moments that have taken place i mean not only probably over the last couple of years but recently and what is that like do you get like do you get like butterflies? Does your heart rate like what is that like? Do you I can't imagine. It's more like the tension of like, oh my god, my editors like want me to do this thing like right now, this right this very second. And it's the, the <laughs> um, you know, but you do you do step back and you do have those those moments where you realize like um what is really happening and 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 that you're part of it. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the country lost John Lewis, one of the most amazing civil rights activist that I've ever met up close, honestly. And, you know, he was just this generous person with his time. He was always talking to reporters. He was, he was really, I mean, I never saw him pass by a group of tourists who he wouldn't go and talk to. And and he was just a really, really engaging person in the Capitol. So just knowing him, you know, from afar. um, So when he passed away, um, I was one of the, the group of pool reporters that was covering the ceremony for him at the Capitol. Um, so all day, and this is of course during the pandemic. So we're, you know, we've got our masks on, we're trying to be apart, but we're kind of um, tight. We're on this tight balcony looking and, and we just, our job is to just watch his casket all day. He's lying in state in the Capitol Rotunda, this massive, massive dome. Wow. Um, you know, it's just, and it's, and it's empty. I mean, this kind of thing I've covered for for other lawmakers, uh, Elijah Cummings of Maryland, another great civil rights leader, he died last year. We covered that. This could not have been more different, you know. So I'm just standing there in this do- under this dome, and there's only allowed to be a couple dozen people in the room, and I'm there. Wow. And after a while, you know, we see just a stream of people coming in and come and just all these lawmakers paying their respects, and then all of a sudden the place empties out, and someone who works for Pelosi comes over and he's like, "Biden's coming. He's coming." And, um, and so, you know, they have to clear the room and do all the security stuff. And then we're, we're watching as, as, as Joe Biden and his wife, Jill are ushered into the room. And I mean, that was one of those moments where, as you said, so much has been happening lately. It's kind of, you're just trying to keep up with, with what's happening and you have to just, um, kind of go with it. But it's moments like that where you, you kind of like stop and you realize, yep, this is, this is happening. This is you know, this is like history in the making. It sounds really cliche, but, um, you know, this is the kind of stuff that, that it really does make you go up again and again to the building and do the long hours, um, deal with the, the politics of the job, um, beyond the national politics. Um, yeah, that was, that was a really cool moment. That is so cool. That is a great story. I'm so glad you shared that. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine, you know, that must make you feel like, oh, yeah, I was meant to do this. Like, it's moments like that where you're like, oh, yeah, I'm in the right place. This is what I like to do. This is awesome. And was that something you always wanted to do, like from a young age? Or was that just something that you you realized later on? I think what's really interesting is I never would have expected to be um, a, political, a political reporter um, 
the way that the role is right now, it requires you to really, you know, you have to have a brand, you have to go on television, you have to, you know, you have to work so hard um, to beyond just your actual work, but just, um, you know, to the journalism is a lot more than just writing stories and interviewing people, which is not what I learned in journalism school. Um, but, you know, there's definitely parts of the day where, you know, I just, I, I'm not a big Twitter person. I don't love it. Um, it is so much of what, um, you know, Washington is and, and just the, the, the brand that you have to build. So I feel like it, in a lot of ways, I, I just never naturally fit for this. You know, it, it takes a lot of, um, you know, I'm, I'm in it because I'm interested in what's happening and the, the stories behind people and the personalities and the politics, but um, it comes with a lot of other, the job comes with a lot of other stuff you just have to learn and, and deal with. And it's a lot of big personalities, a lot of egos, a lot of, um, you know, I won't say the swamp, but I feel like that got a little overused, but um, you know, it's uh, navigating all of that is, is not the kind of stuff that I uh, was, was, you know, really anticipating when I was, you know, I think I was, my first job in the news was like a copy editor for the Reed Intermediate School in <laughs> sixth grade, um, you know, going on through um, one of the editors at the high school paper and then at my college paper. Um, you know, it's just journalism has changed a lot. And there's a lot of uh, DC political journalism that comes with kind of these Twitter, you know, made for Twitter moments that, you know, really, that's not what it's about for me. Um, but, you know, you kind of kind of have to play the game and that's how it goes. And there's still so much. You have a lot of followers on Twitter. It's impressive. <laughs> I saw 20,000. I was like, wow. I was like, that's awesome. Like, it really helps get, but it helps get what you're saying out there to everyone, which is very helpful. And, you know, you were yeah. mentioning um, how you wrote for the, uh, the George Washington Hatchet. And how did writing for the Hatchet kind of um, prepare you for what you, what you do now? Because I know you were at the Hill before. And you wrote for the Hill newspaper. So how did how did working at the Hatchet prepare you for for what you've been doing now? I think single the Hatchet single handedly was the the best preparation I ever could have had it for a newspaper job. For we paid a lot of money for my GW degree. I will not say I didn't learn anything in those classes. Um, I definitely went to class, Mom. If you listen to this, um, but you know, being in charge of a newspaper that is really the the main source of news for an entire community in DC. This is the Foggy Bottom historic neighborhood in DC. Um, it actually is is a decently diverse neighborhood beyond just college students. Um, and we would cover, you know, we, of course we would cover kind of the the university president and that administration and, and where they were, um, you know, kind of what the policies were academically, but it was so much more than that. And you know, I, I learned how to cover real estate because we had the university had real estate investments. I learned how to cover crime because we were an urban campus. I learned how to wrest information away from from agencies like MPD or, you know, the, the Metropolitan Police Department or the campus police department because these were not the most transparent institutions. Uh, we learned, I mean, we would be talking to anybody from, you know, victims of, of domestic assault or or abuse on campus, um, talking with, you know, people who, um, you know, are, are coming to college and, and taking any sort of social action campaigns, like leading these really impressive campaigns on campus. I mean, there was just so much, so much to cover. Um, and you, you also learn about the weight of the responsibility of it too. I mean, um, everyone I know who was in college media kind of says like, yeah, this is the place where you, you make your mistakes, you kind of learn how to do it. 
Um, maybe you wouldn't have handled the story that, that way if you did it now, that sort of thing. Those are definitely painful moments, you know, cause you're, you're still dealing with real things. I mean, there's, there's kids that die on campus and you have to call the parents and there's, um, you know, there's, there's real consequences of the stuff that you're reporting on in college, but you're learning how to do it as a 20 year old. And, <laughs> wow. um, most of the time you're, you know, you're either supposed to be in class or you're maybe a little hungover or you're definitely sleep deprived. Right. Um, you know, but, uh, that was the most incredible experience for me. I would not, I, I probably would be in a different profession if, if I hadn't gotten roped into that on my first year on campus. That's super cool. That's, that's what I, that's what I figured. I mean, I, I figured that must've been a great experience for you. Something I'm curious to know, and I'm sure my listeners are, is what is a typical day being a congressional reporter? I mean, I mean, not just for any outlet, but for Politico, which is a news outlet that is known to be extremely trustworthy and has broken so many na- uh, major news stories. What can you say about that? Um, what's really unique about Politico, um, especially for me, I work for the Congress team. So um, it's a very organized group in in the way that we are constantly communicating. I mean, I, I'm never like 10 minutes without getting a text on a group chat of, from my colleagues, you know, whether it's the ones who cover the house with me, or maybe they cover the Senate, we're divided into kind of house Republicans, house Democrats, Senate Republicans, Senate Democrats, a couple of people who float around in the middle. And it's just this really fascinating dynamic of, you know, of course, you're competitive. We're, we're journalists in the 21st century. You're going to be trying to break news. Um, you know, but we're also extremely collaborative because covering Congress, you have 500 members, um, you know, multiply that times 20 staffers. Um, I mean, there's an infinite number of people you can be talking to, getting information from, learning new things from. Um, so obviously I, I can't cover all, you know, 235 Democrats we work a ton with our team and it's just this constant, um, you know, just flow of information. Like, okay, what is, uh, I heard this, I heard that. Okay. Is this, does this warrant a full story? Is this just a tweet? Are we going to turn this into a long form story and spend more time on it? Um, it's usually doing three to five stories at a time. Um, at least when they're in session right now, it's a little bit slower. Um, but you're, you know, you're communicating with, okay, this is kind of a story that has a campaign angle. Let's talk to our campaign teams. Um, this is a kind of a healthcare story. Let's rope in these guys. Um, so it's just, it's just this really fascinating way of, you know, getting the final product, which is, um, we always want it to be as comprehensive as possible. Are we missing something? What perspectives are we not hearing from? Um, and so, you know, if I do a story on my own, it's definitely not as complete or, you know, as, as. Uh, it's not as comprehensive if if I'm working with a team of other people who are talking to people beyond my circle. So that's been that's one of the really interesting parts of my job. You know, currently in this moment, what are you really focusing on um, with everything that's going on and 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 how you're you're reporting heavily on things? What is something that you're really focusing on, or is sort of or is it sort of a mixed bag of what you're reporting on? Right now, um, it's starting to be really the uh, the height of campaign season, even though it doesn't really feel like that because I'm not traveling and we're stuck here in D.C. Um, but what I we're pretty confident right now that the House is going to remain Democratic. They have a pretty sizable margin. Right now, the polls are looking like the House Democrats could even pick up seats, which is nothing like we expected a year ago when they were in the middle of impeaching the president. And so right now I'm looking more at the dynamics within the Democratic caucus. You have 
um, these progressives, like everyone knows, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, um, kind of the other members of the squad, these are really well-known national figures. But so far, they've had pretty little influence within the caucus. Um, there is a, a group of progressives that's that's pretty influential. They're very vocal, um, but they haven't really been able to get a ton done. And that's because uh, Nancy Pelosi, who is one of the best whip counters, she can just twist arms, get the votes she needs. She's the most effective legislator I've ever seen. Um, but she knows that there's a lot of members of the party who aren't on board with some of these bigger ideas. So Medicare for all, for example, is never going to get a floor vote until there's a, a lot more progressives in the caucus. Right. And these big ideas like Green New Deal are never going to come to the floor until there's the, the caucus itself looks a lot different. Mm -hmm. So what I'm covering is, you know, what is the makeup of the of the next caucus going to look like? Uh, who are the House Democrats going to be starting in 2020? And that will have a huge impact on what legislation that can get done. One thing that really drives me crazy about political coverage of the presidential campaign, um, Congress is always going to be there and it's always going to block the most ambitious goals of any party. I mean, we saw, I wasn't here for Obamacare's uh, passage, but um, you know, that's exactly the way that that stalled and took forever. And there was so many problems within the party of just trying to get this, this legislation through. Um, that would happen like tenfold if there was to be a Biden administration and even a slightly Democratic Senate. And um, I mean, just the margins in what we saw under Obama, I mean, they had so many more Democrats in Congress than they than there are now. Um, so anything that would get done in 2020 is, I mean, the, the makeup is just, the margins are so narrow. The parties are, um, it's gonna be a lot closer. So that's, I'm kind of looking at what are the dynamics going to be under a potential Biden administration and, and the dynamics within the Democratic caucus. Right. And, you know, I don't have a very thorough background in D.C. politics, obviously, and uh, I'm either do my listeners. So, you know, what are some things about D.C. and working in that environment that you wouldn't know unless you were in the belly of the beast, so to speak? That's a really good question. Um, one thing that's really always funny to me um, when you see... There's a, there's a lot about a politician's brand that's kind of manufactured. Um, and by that, I mean, you look at a congressman or congresswoman's Twitter account or, you know, their Facebook page or something, and you see they might be delivering a soaring speech, um, you know, that, that really makes it seem like they're this champion of an issue or, you know, in reality, that speech was probably delivered to an empty chamber with nobody listening and, and just you know, it doesn't mean that much. Um, and, and what I think is really interesting is you're able to, you know, just with a simple speech on the floor to an empty chamber or introducing legislation that's never going to go anywhere or holding an event. I mean, politicians are so easily able to shape their brand. And their position might be strikingly different than what they've said. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot in a person's image if they're in the public eye um, that, it might end up being their staff a lot of times that does the work. And um, when you actually talk to some of these members up close, they're, they're not all that engaged. They're, they're not always um, the most in tune with what's going on. Uh, I think that's starting to change. We're seeing a lot of younger members being elected, but there still is this uh, sentiment up on the Hill where there's really senior members who've just been there for a really long time and um, kind of the way things are. Right. You know, I, I agree with it. I agree with everything you said. I think that's a great way to put it. And, you know, a lot of people who want to get into politics usually get disillusioned when they finally get into politics, become elected, see how things are run in D.C., 
see it's like this big ugly mess and then they get totally turned off and they go do something completely different. Do you agree with that sentiment? Yes, 100%. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's actually um there's actually a couple a couple of members who who were elected in this last blue wave as we called 2018 with the Democrats taking back the house. Um, there was a, a lot of members who won in these really tight districts that had been represented by Republicans. They Trump had had won them in 2016. Um, basically, these Democratic-leaning moderates who came in, they said they were going to shake things up, they were going to uh, drain the swamp, but not in the Trump way, in their own way, uh, but they were going to make Washington work again. And most of them, from what it seems like, are, are, are going to be staying in the House. It sounds like they're, they will be able to survive their um, their reelections, and I'm really curious what that crop of people will do. I'm talking about some of the people like um, Abigail Spanberger comes to mind. She's from Virginia. She's uh, represents part of Virginia. Um, there's uh, Elaine Loria, another Virginian. There's basically this group of folks who came in with military backgrounds or a way. You know, they had kind of a we're not partisan. You know, for a long time we were in uniform, so we didn't really belong to a party, and they they all kind of have banded together and said, like, we're going to be above the fray. We're, we're not going to get roped into this. And, and so far, it, it, you know, they've had a really trying two years. They, they came out, they came into Congress in the middle of a shutdown, then there was impeachment. And basically, so I'm, I'm looking to see, you know, these folks who said they were going to change up Washington, haven't really had a chance to do that yet. And I'm curious if given another term, if they'll be able to do that. I'm curious too, because I would like to see that. And, you know, I know, you know, to, to pivot to something else, I know that uh, you've been on cable television, national television, because I know that I've seen you in the background during hearings reporting on everything going on. I remember this one time I was sick from work and I was watching one of the hearings and there you were in the background reporting on it. And I, I remember taking the picture and texting it to you and it was so funny. So, you know, they have other things on television if you're homesick. From- <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't know. Sometimes I just love that stuff every <laughs> once in a while. It's not, it's not frequent, but every once in a while, but what are some of those um, some of those moments where that happened, and you know, did any of those stick out to you? Um, there's always uh, it was it was kind of funny during impeachment. I feel like that was the that was when everybody outside of Washington was paying attention to what was happening on the House floor and in these committee hearings. And I mean, my colleagues and I had been covering them for years. We've been going to them for years. There was never any pomp and circumstance. And then you know, all of a sudden, the impeachment, this historic event is happening. We're in the middle of it. And it became like a joke of who was going to go to the hearing that day in person. Cause we're all watching the hearings, but someone from my team had to go to the hearings in person and no one ever wanted to do it because you would be on television all day. And you know, there were a couple of my friends got turned into memes. Like one of my friends, um, chugging coffee on camera and like, she became like the coffee chugging girl. <laughs> oh, no. and she, and she, you know, just all this funny stuff. And, um, you know, one of my coworkers who's uh, a little younger than me, and he cares a lot about his appearance, so he always looks very nice. And he was he was called um, Impeachment Bay. So, like, Twitter was calling him Impeachment Bay. <laughs> <laughs> oh so, you know, behind every great impeachment hearing witness, there were a group of uh, reporters who just really did not want to be in the spotlight. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so I mostly, I, fortunately, I was able to stay out of those really high profile hearings. Also, those rooms are freezing and it's hard to be in there for like eight hours at a time. But, you know, anytime you know you're going to be in the background of a C-SPAN camera just literally all day, you have to, have to prepare. 
Yeah, no, I can imagine. And, you know, speaking of C-SPAN, I like to keep up with politics. And I have seen you on Newsmakers on C-SPAN. And I saw where you interviewed James Clyburn, the Democratic United States uh, representative from South Carolina, who is an icon. And I also saw uh, you interviewed AOC recently um, for something else. But, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of both. And I'm curious, who else have you had the privilege of speaking to? And what else have you been a part of besides just uh, being on C-SPAN? Well, that's going to sound like a really uh, braggadocious kind of answer. Um, I will say interviewing Mr. Clyburn was was really cool. He is he's just been in politics for so long. He literally knows everything. Um, it's hard to it's hard to find a question that kind of gets him out of his uh, script. But um, you you mentioned Ocasio Cortez. She's one of the most fascinating people to interview. Not only because she understands how to go viral, and she can really just deliver a quote that is just just really good, um, which is what a lot of members struggle with. You know, she's someone who just understands exactly what her brand is and, and how to how to get quoted. And um, right. it's really interesting. Um, but I, part of my job is to is to I, I might interview, you know, a dozen different Democrats in a day, just kind of in the hallway. They might know who I am. They might not. I introduce myself, ask them, tell them what I want to ask them about. So it's, it's really interesting. That, that is a whole different brand of reporting that almost no other reporters get to do because you cover the White House, you don't get to do that. If you cover a state legislature, you don't usually get to do that. Um, so congressional reporting is really unique and awesome in that regard. Um, there's also um, a lot of cool sit-down interviews that I've done with Politico. I've sat down with Speaker Nancy Pelosi wow. two or three different times with a as part of a group. She's a really really fascinating person um, in general. I mean, I'm in the middle of reading one of her biographies right now, and it's um, you kind of understand why she is this political giant, um, just the, right. the career that she's had. Yeah, every every congressional reporter will kind of do the obligatory event at the White House, kind of cover a, um, a rose garden ceremony here and there, or I've, I've done the pool duty at the White House, which is not glamorous at all. It's just sitting around waiting for the helicopter to take off. Um, <laughs> Being in the U.S. Capitol, um, you know, just being surrounded by by members—that's that's what I know and love. That's the that's the setting that's really fun for me. Covering the White House, you don't get the access that you do at the Capitol at all. Um, so it's cool. in, in weird ways, it's actually a very transparent institution, even though it's politics. So nothing's transparent. Right. No, that that's really cool. And I'm curious: is there one person more than the other where? You're walking down the hall and you see them and they're like, oh, that's so-and-so. He's going to give me something good. Like, this is going to be great. And you just go right over. You know it's going to be good. Is there someone like that? Or is it kind of just you never know what you're going to get? It's kind of funny. So definitely depends on what that person was in their previous life. So um, there's people by now who have been decades in Congress. You kind of always know they're going to be a great quote. Um, or you know they're always going to know what the good gossip is. And, and they'll talk to you about that. Um, what's funny is... Um, if you can find a lawmaker who was previously either a reverend or a pastor, they have a really great way of crystallizing whatever it, what subject it is. Um, there's a Democrat named Emanuel Cleaver from Missouri, former reverend. He frequently will give a prayer during these private caucus meetings, and it almost always is a, a great anecdote for a story. Um, he just has a way of like crystallizing the moment and say, because that's what a a, you know, a person who's leading a church does. And there's a, a Republican, Mark Walker, who was, I don't remember what sect of Christianity, but um, he's, he's another one who can really just kind of take the moment and tell you how it is. And you're like, 
oh, that's a really good way to put it. And I mean, that's exactly what you're looking for when you're trying to put together a story real quick. Right. And you know, what is the hardest part of the job? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of difficult things, but what, if there's one thing, like what do you think is the hardest, the hardest thing that you have to encounter or do or whatever it is? I think the hardest part, especially, especially post-Trump, because I started out during Obama, um, the hardest part is, is writing fairly. And what I mean by that is there's um, a lot of two sides ism that goes on that you learn in journalism school, kind of, you know, just each side gets enough attention equally, just be equal to both sides. Um, and, you know, it's issues on, on issues like climate change, for example, that's part of the reason the media was so bad at covering climate change for so long. Um, when it came to issues of science, um, it, reporters didn't really know how to cover anti-science fairly, right? So I think people have figured it out more. Um, but in, in politics, it's really, really hard to cover the Democratic Party, cover the Republican Party, and state what their issues are, state what their arguments are. Um, when you're when they're pitting being pitted against the other party, and inherently every single person who who subscribes to that other belief is going to tell you that you're writing about it wrong. Right. And every person who, you know, if you're writing about Democrats, you're going to get Democrats calling you and saying you're not being fair to us. This isn't you're not giving us um, what you know. You're you're exaggerating or you're. And you talk to Republicans and they're going to say the same thing, no matter what you're writing. And that's definitely intensified. The partisanship has gotten really, really bad. There's just a lot less common ground. And so this, the, the political warfare breaks out in the media too. I mean, I get the calls, I get the emails, I get, um, you know, even Twitter DMs sometimes of, of people just saying that journalists are biased and blah, blah. And it's, it's not just a, just a Trump supporter thing either. I mean, Trump likes to say that the media is the enemy of the people, but um, there's there's a lot of angst on the left too, not trusting the media. I mean, the media ignored Bernie Sanders in 2016. I mean, there were huge problems in in the coverage during that election. So of course there's going to be distrust on the left as well. Um, so that's that's it's hard. I think we're we're trying to get better at it as an industry, but um, every reporter has to prioritize it for themselves and really work on it. Yeah, you know, and that you bring up a good point, and it's something I wanted to ask. What is it like being called fake news by the president? Because I'm pretty sure has has Politico fallen under the fake news category. I'm I'm sure it has. I just oh, of course. Oh. <laughs> um, I think Politico was among those being banned from some of the early White House events, but I think that was just most. Okay. Outlets. Um, what any reporter will tell you is that um, the the golden rule is to never become part of the story. So the best reporters that I know will almost always you know, try to stay out of it, you know, above the fray, don't, you know, ignore what, what people are saying. Um, it's really when it becomes an access issue that, that you have to deal, deal with it and do something about it. And, um, you know, fortunately, there's, there's some great institutions. For example, anytime Trump is trying to shut down access to a certain group of reporters, sometimes the, they'll disinvite reporters from certain outlets, or they'll, they'll prioritize Trump-friendly outlets to bring to events and that sort of thing. And there's a White House Correspondents Association, kind of a kind of like a union for reporters ish, like a collective group on behalf of White House reporters. And that's the group that will intervene and sit down with whoever is the communications director of the White House at the time and say, you know, these are our grievances. We need to work to address these. And so they they have similar ones for congressional reporters too. So there were, you know, those are those are kind of where those battles 
play out, which is good because then as an individual reporter, you don't have to be consumed with very complicated rhetoric about, you know, what the media role is. And and I think there's some some merit to, you know, Trump's arguments in certain cases. I think there's you can look to certain outlets that have either not covered the campaign, you know, in full or you know, it's, it's really hard. I mean, um, when, when the meet, when the coverage is just this wall to wall, 24 seven comprehensive, there's going to be, you can probably nitpick to a story in every news outlet in every single day of, Hey, actually, you know, maybe you could have included this or that or not included this, but I mean, that's, that's the job you have to, it's the first draft of history. You have to be figuring out what you missed and, and okay, give it, give it more coverage the next day, dig into a little more, you know, trust your judgment at the at the same time. So it's uh, <laughs> fun. <laughs> I can only imagine. Do you have speaking of Trump? Do you have a Donald Trump story at all, or you know, running you know, not running into him, but like seeing him from afar or anything like that? No, I don't. Um, I I've been basically stationed on the hill. Um, right. The the times that the congressional reporters really encounter Trump is especially at the very beginning when he was just elected. It was. <laughs> Um, every, you'd, you'd see the Trump tweet cause we all got alerts on our phone whenever there was a Trump tweet. Right. Um, and you would immediately turn to whatever Republican lawmaker is in your vicinity and ask them about it. I mean, whether it's, I can't even remember the, the scandals from the early days. I mean, it was oh, feels like so long ago. Um, you know, but, uh, more recently you could ask Republicans, Hey, uh, Trump is tweeting praise for, um, Jeffrey Epstein's what, you know, that whole controversy that I never fully understood. Um, you know, you said to Glenn Maxwell, I, I wish her well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you could go up to a Republican member of Congress. That's just, yeah. it's their job to answer for another member of their party. Like, sorry, we have to ask it. But it just became, it was like the daily, it, it was like the, it was, it was crazy. And, you know, they, they hated to be asked about Trump's tweet. And it still happens. I mean, this this is still a daily occurrence, especially for the Senate Republicans. Obviously, Republicans control the Senate, so they are in the majority. So they have to be, uh, they're responsible for what their president says. He's the leader of their party. So, you know, that's, you kind of get the, okay, deep breath, eye roll a little bit, maybe. And then they're going to come up with an excuse for why they haven't seen that tweet. And there were actually reporters by, by a couple of weeks or months in would just start printing out the tweets and handing it to the members in case so that way you can't say you didn't see it and they're like well here's a copy of it right here um so just just the way that republicans had to i mean he was just something unlike they had ever seen before and it it did take a little while for the party to embrace him fully i think the tax cuts debate in 2017 which was another really really painful time politically because that was just really That was like 24-7, but um, that really solidified it. And after that, it was a little bit more smooth sailing in the GOP. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, do you have a hero or just an idol in the journalism world or someone you just really admire that kind of you look up to and, you know, maybe someone who inspired you or anything like that? I, that's a really good question, too. Um, I think... For me, I'm always looking at what the New York Times political reporters are doing and writing. They are the gold standard. I mean, just their their prose, their their insights are just just really phenomenal. Um, everyone should subscribe. For me, there's a reporter named Peter Baker uh, who's been covering the White House for decades for the New York Times, and he wrote the book on impeachment uh, of Bill Clinton. 
that I was reading to study uh, as the House was preparing to impeach Donald Trump. So I, you know, I'd go about my day, I'd come home, I'd read this book, I'd kind of anticipate what the House was going to be doing for this particular impeachment. And then when I, when they, they did start to impeach him, they began the proceedings and the, and the hearings. Um, I was sitting next, I was seated next to Peter Baker at one point. Wow. And I'm like, I love your book. <laughs> <laughs> and he's written several books. He probably didn't even know what I was, what right. I was talking about. But, um, you know, it's kind of when, when the generations collide and history is kind of happening again. And of course, you're going to bring in your most senior correspondent on the subject. And, um, you know, he's someone who's, who's really friendly to other reporters and is, is definitely kind of a mentor type to any, any younger reporter who's looking for it. Um, there's not a ton of congressional reporters who make it to the point where they've covered Congress for decades because it's kind of a grueling beat, um, crazy hours. I mean, they're, like I said, I was working all day Saturday because the vote's just coming in. You know, they just schedule it for whenever they want and you're, you have to source up every two years because the people are changing and it's a demanding beat. Um, so there's not a ton of senior correspondence. So anybody who survives and makes it to, um, you know, covering covering that institution for 20, 30 years is is uh, someone to be looked up to for sure. Right. That's awesome. And so basically there are times when you just get the call to get up and run and go report. Is that is that right? Essentially, like, yeah, it's usually a text message from my boss. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it can just and, and this, you know, I'm very lucky to be able to do this job and, and definitely should not be complaining about the hours um, because it's still very cool. But man, the, those, those impeachment weeks and months, it's like, you know, you just, you get home from the Capitol, it might be 11, it might be midnight just for, for months on end. And it's like when Congress is impeaching a president, that's what you do. And it just seems like there's been so many moments like that. I mean, 2018, there was a 35 day shutdown. And for every single day we had to, what's happening? Like, you know, and, and just from then on, there was just, I mean, you think back to just everything that's happened and it's um, there's somebody in the Capitol waiting outside Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office every time, you know, <laughs> until she, until she leaves the Capitol, you know, it is our job to, to be there if she's there. And um, you do a lot of stakeouts, which if you watch cop shows might sound really fun. Um, we don't get the donuts or like the, you know, time spent in a car, like comfortable chairs, like our stakeouts are standing on marble or like if you sit, you can't like Capitol Police considers it a protest. So you can't sit. Oh. Um, so you're standing on the marble floors for hours at a time waiting for, you know, Mark Meadows or Stephen Mnuchin or somebody to walk, maybe walk by and maybe say something to you. And uh, yeah, that's that's the real glamour. You run into our friends down there at all. Um, uh, Senator Murphy or Senator Blumenthal. Yes. Yep. Okay. They are. They are some of the most quotable people in the Senate. As I was saying before, there's a lot, it, it takes, it's, it's difficult to be someone who is really, who is both a experienced, wise senator who spent decades in the institution, but also being like a sharp, punchy quote, and who's also good at talking about Donald Trump. Like those things don't always go hand in hand. Um, Chris Murphy is one of, uh, I, I don't cover the Senate, so I don't talk to him as much, but my colleagues who talk to him in the Senate say he is one of the most you know, just he's so he's so friendly with with reporters. He's so willing to answer every last question, and so he's very popular, uh, yeah. popular guy. He's also you know the same age as, as some of my coworkers, and um, you know talk yeah. about your kids together. And I've always said to him, and he always laughs when I say it because I've met him a couple times. 
uh, just randomly when he does his walk around the state. Yep. You say to him, you know, you could easily run for president someday. Like, I'm, I'm serious. You have what it takes. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I remember that there, I mean, back when everyone and their mother was running for president just a couple <laughs> of months ago, um, I think there, you know, there were definitely people who were talking about him. He's, he's a young guy. He's got a, he's got a ton of experience. He's on some of these seat, you know, these selective committees in the Senate. What's interesting is that, okay, so Joe Biden, now the nominee, he's a white male. He had a huge background in foreign affairs. I mean, he was on that committee, um, judiciary, you know, he was this, um, you know, guy who came up kind of the traditional way. In a lot of ways, Senator Murphy has done has done that in a similar way. I mean, he he came from the local politics to the House, then to the Senate. He is one of the top voices for Democrats on these foreign issues. I mean, for the man to just let him start talking about arms sales to Saudi Arabia, and yeah. <laughs> um, it's I always learn something new from him. And um, in a lot of ways, I think it's going to be hard for that same playbook to work for Democratic candidates of the future. I think there was a lot of people who were really reluctant to see another white male lead the Democratic Party. And it's really tough. You know, there's there's a lot of qualified people, but I, I think there's kind of a collective understanding in the party going forward that there needs to be someone with a different set of values, a different set of experiences, or you're just not going to you're not going to be able to make the party happy because it's a, it's a very different party than the one that you were kind of, that kind of raised you. So, you know, do I think he could be definitely someone who's in a cabinet position or, um, you know, even a potential democratic leadership position, I think, uh, don't quote me on that. Cause I don't cover the Senate. This is kind of a, I have not talked to my sources about this. Um, you know, but he's, um, someone like that with the charisma that he has and his, I mean, he is funny on social media. Like that is pretty unique for um, for a, a member of Congress, let alone a senator. Um, so I think you know, I don't think those those the party would let those talents go to waste. I, I definitely see him him rising up. Right. So a few more things before um, you go, and thank you so much again for coming on. Uh, one of those things is, I am of the mind. I would really like to see a woman female president. I would love to see it. I, that is something that I really wish happened in 2016, um, you know, regardless of what people say about Hillary Clinton. And what are your thoughts on Kamala Harris now um, having the, the VP nomination? And what's your thoughts on the Democratic ticket? I, it's funny because we, we were all waiting for so many months to hear Kamala Harris be announced as vice president. I mean, every reporter I know, if you, you know, we all, we all knew, right? I mean, this was just, she was just the ideal person for so many reasons all along. Um, so there was never really a ton of surprise, but I think it, we can't lose the moment. The, the fact that this is so historic, this uh, you know, of, of course, not only the first black woman, the first Asian American woman, um, and she's also really the first of this generation that is going to be um, the next leaders in, in in Congress, in the White House. I mean, um, I think we lose, uh, we forget a lot that the, the Democratic Party's leadership is quite old. <laughs> it's not just Joe Biden, the top three Democrats in the House are all in their 70s. Um, some are in their 80s. And Kamala Harris be given this this prime spot. You know, the party is really saying to her, we are going to listen to you. We want to elevate you. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on and giving me some of your time. I really appreciate it. Um, before you go and before my guests leave me, something I usually ask them is, 
what are some of their favorite places to get pizza? One place in particular is New Haven because New Haven has some of the best pizza and there's all those places out there. But whether you're back here in Connecticut or whether you're in D.C., whether it's pizza, pizza or whether it's just food in general, what are some places you really like to go to? I mean, everyone says Pepe's, right? Like that's what everyone says. Most people on the podcast have said that too, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, this is controversial, but I think my place pizza in Newtown has some of the best. Yeah. I, I mean, my family would fight over like where to get it from. Tambasco's was always good right down the street for me. Right. But, uh, oh yeah, pizzas. I've been making pizza like everyone in this pandemic, like making your own dough and doing that whole thing. And obviously, real quick, you can't leave before two more two more additional questions that I just remembered. I can't I can't let you go without without asking you. Is one is is it true that you were once a Red Sox fan but are now converted to a Nationals fan? <laughs> well, I mean, they got rid of Mookie Betts. I mean, um, I I used to live right next to the Nationals Park, which was awesome. Uh, would go to a lot of games. So it's hard to not be a fan when, when it's all happening around you. But my loyalties are still with the Red Sox, I think, until they do something else stupid. Gotcha. And also, before you go, what is it like your family uh, owning Ferris Creamery, which has been one of the top creameries, ice cream shops, you name it, in the state of Connecticut, in New England, probably on the East Coast? What, what is that like? All the publicity and all the people who go all the time, like how, how great has that been? Well, I have not worked there since I was um, in college, so I cannot take any of the credit for how amazing it is. My right. entire family is so hardworking and are truly the like most diligent people. I mean, they just they put their whole their their whole soul into that place and have just I'm just, I'm just so proud of them. Every time I bring home ice cream, which I did recently, uh, which was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I brag about it to people. I mean, I'm talking, I, I talked to Chris Murphy. I'm like, Hey, have you been to the creamery lately? You should go. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm just so proud of name an ice cream. What? You should name an ice cream after Chris Murphy. No, oh, well, you know, our signature mint flavor is named after former governor MJ Rell, Jody Rell. Right. Um, right. It would get a little political if we did more than one, but I could bring it up to my grandmother, see what she says. <laughs> well, listen, Sarah, thank you so much. Uh, national reporter covering Congress for Politico. Thank you so much for coming on. Be, uh, stay safe, be well, uh, hang in there with everything that's going on. And uh, I look forward to having you on maybe eventually down the road. Thank you so much and have a great night. Anytime. This is awesome. Keep it up. Huge thanks once again to my guest on the podcast today, Sarah Ferris. So happy to see all the great things you are doing and are a part of, and I wish you nothing but continued success and look forward to speaking to you again down the road. Yet again, another episode of Sweeten Up is in the books. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We would greatly appreciate your feedback. As a reminder, you can play the podcast with the help of your smart speaker by simply saying, hey, play the podcast Sweeten Up with Jeff Spencer. Thank you as always to my best friends, the guys who make it all possible, post-production and music, Morgan Luzzi, art director, Kurt Vinci, editor and writer, Nick Passacreta, and huge thanks as always to my guy, Devin Sapelli. Next week on the podcast, I will be joined by the great and powerful Julie Kushner. Julie Kushner is an American politician and current Connecticut State Senator representing Connecticut's 24th Senate District. We had an amazing conversation ranging from COVID-19, growing up in Iowa and Nebraska, fighting for working families for many decades, thoughts on Kamala Harris, and so much more. But 
Until then, you know the deal. Stay safe, stay healthy, love you all. Peace. <laughs>